If you have your Bibles, hold on tight. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. And as we now switch gears concerning our study, can we keep one thing in mind together as, as, a, as a church, as a family? We were praying upstairs about this study, as we always do every Friday, and, and this one thing came up as we were praying. Lord, let this not be some subject that we study, but let us understand that we are discovering a person to be experienced. And we can get into that mode where we're, we're so analytical and we're trying to figure things out in definitions and we can almost debate to the point where it's a subject matter and not a person that we know. And if you know Jesus Christ, as we discover his supremacy, his divinity, his transcendence, his holiness, his superiority, realize this, if you're in Christ, he's yours and you belong to him. And we're going to realize that this Christ, as awesome as he is, is the same Jesus Christ that you can meet with tomorrow morning before you start your day, tonight before you go to bed. This Jesus is alive. So we are not putting on our microscopes and taking out our magnifying glasses to try to understand some kind of topic. We are discovering the lover of our souls. And for the past two weeks, we've been understanding the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've been proving, defending and understanding that Jesus Christ was fully man. Jesus Christ is currently fully man. And Jesus Christ is returning in the flesh. And we saw verse after verse defending that reality. But now we are going to look at the other aspect of his nature. Fully man, yes. Fully God, very important. And we better believe this together, that if there is an aspect of the person of Jesus Christ that will come under scrutiny and attack, it is certain to come against his divinity. It is certain to come against his deity. If you want to know what makes many of the cults cults is that they strip Christ of his divine nature, of his equality with God. And it's not coming from their own man-made texts, their own forgeries of what they call to be the Word of God. What many people who are operating under, unfortunately, the spirit of the Antichrist, what they are doing is they're even with audacity and ferociousness using our own Bible, the Word of God, to try to bring the true believers in Christ into doubt concerning who the person of Christ is in His divinity. Where shall we go tonight? Shall we go to the very claims of Christ himself, that he was God and he is God? Shall we go to the miraculous acts that are so unique to the person of Jesus Christ that make him above all the other miracles that were performed by even the greatest prophets? Shall we go to the fact that people worship this Jesus and he did not refuse that worship? Shall we go to the testimony of others, including of the Father himself, declaring the Godhood of Jesus Christ? Where shall we go? Well, God willing, we'll go through those different things in different weeks. But tonight, let's just clear the air. Let's use this session to clear the air by doing this. Answering common objections against the divinity of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to spend our time doing tonight. How many people will come into this book and use verses out of context 
or try to use words and put their own definition on it, or maybe there's a limited understanding of what those words might mean, and spin it off to show that Jesus Christ can't be God. Just for the sake of discussion, maybe you know some verses, or maybe you've even, not in a desire to disprove the divinity of Christ, but just genuinely trying to inquire and wanting to know what this means, because it almost seems like it conflicts with that thought. Are there verses that come to mind or maybe has been brought up to you by others to say, this is why Jesus isn't God? Barrett? Uh, Matthew 19, the rich young ruler says, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? God alone is good. Yes, and we're going to be talking about that. The rich young ruler says, good teacher. And how does Jesus answer? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Oh. Let me just stop because we're going to go there in a moment. That's a great one. That's a huge one. Any other objections? Or verses that might conflict with the understanding of the deity of Christ? We already, dis- we already discussed that it is not impossible for God to enter into his creation to take on flesh. We spend many, many sessions discussing that reality. So that, that, that's put aside. But what other verses come up, perhaps by Muslims, perhaps by Jehovah Witnesses, that would try to put even true believers in doubt of what they believe? The Father is greater than I, so we discussed that last week. Understanding that that term greater can be defined in different ways, but the way Jesus defined it was how? Greater in rank, position. Not in essence, because that's his nature. In his rank and position, because God was in glory, Christ removed and laid aside his glory to enter into a form of a servant being a ransom for many, and being under the subjection of the Father. And in John 17, he says, Oh God, would you restore the glory that I had with you before even the world began? So that greater than I is not the way we understand essence or nature or value or dignity. No, but position and rank. That's another one. Well, we discussed that one, so we'll put that one aside. Any other objections? Yes. This witness Bible says a God for John 1.1. Okay, so the Jehovah's Witness Bible, what, what's their version called? Does anybody know? The New World Translation. And if you look into the New World Translation, what you will find is that those who have come up with a corrupt text, such as that, have eliminated or changed the main verses that describe the deity of Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 10.30, Romans 9.5. And God willing, we will spend an entire session using the Jehovah's Witness Bible to prove that Jesus is God. Even though that they've taken those main verses away, what they have failed to do is we'll discover together one day. Stay tuned. Any other objections? Common objections to the divinity of Christ? Yes. Uh, who touched me? The bleeding woman. Okay, so we, we, we even maybe touched on that a little bit. We glazed on that a little bit about how Christ operated as a human as well, fully human. And there is this observation of how he seemed to have limited knowledge at times with that one that particular incident and what was the other one we talked about how about the end times about the end times no man knows the hour nor the angels of heaven nor the son but only the father so that that's part of it so we'll put that one aside as well yes uh jesus calling the father my god okay and did we talk about that why again, just for the sake of a reminder, why did Jesus say, I have a God, my God being the Father? He's the God of all flesh, Jeremiah 32 says. And Jesus Christ took on flesh, and when he took on flesh, he assumed that God was his Father, and still does today, because he's still in the flesh. Yes, Paul? I 
think the main objection that I hear, it may not be a verse, but it may be the fact that Jesus has never claimed to be God himself. Where does your Bible say that Jesus Christ says, I am God, worship me? Now, we touched on that on one of the first few weeks. Does anybody remember what the closest thing to that is, according to the book of John? It's when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Okay, that's one at the end of John, but out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Before Abraham was. Okay, that's one. Maybe, we, maybe we'll go to it just to remind. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. This is good to remember. If anybody ever says, show me where Jesus says, worship me for I am God. This is the closest thing you'll get to it. In fact, if you connect this with a passage in Revelation, it is clearly him saying, you better worship me. John 5, 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Why has God, the father, given all judgment to the son? For this reason, in verse 23, that all may honor the son. Now, if he had stopped there, you can put in what you believe honor means. Honor him as a teacher. Honor him as a great prophet. Honor him as a miracle worker. But Jesus does not stop there. He says that they may honor the son just as they honor the father. Just as they honor the Father. So here's a simple question. And if anybody fails to find a definition for this, you go to Revelation chapter 5. We'll go there tonight and see what it means to honor the Father. How do you honor the Father? How do you honor the Father? And whatever answer that is, Jesus says, I want that for me. And we'll realize in Revelation chapter 5 that there are angels in the thousands. And there are every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that are giving glory and honor. They're worshiping him. That's what Jesus is asking for according to these verses. Give me honor the way you, you would give God the Father honor. No man would dare to say such a thing without being blasphemous unless, of course, he was God. I'm looking for one particular verse in one epistle that always comes up as an objection to the fact that Jesus Christ is not God, but is a creature and a created being. Think of a verse that's a powerful verse. It's a verse that many of us have memorized. It's a verse that we go to to, to speak of and explore the supremacy of Christ. Does anybody know? Yes, Colossians 1, 15, 16, and 17. Can we put up Colossians 1, 15, 16, and 17 and see what that verse says and how it is unfortunately used to try to dismiss the truth of who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the what? Firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That sounds a lot like someone is eternal, but that word firstborn is brought up. In fact, by almost all Jehovah's Witnesses, that's their go-to verse. To say, yeah, Jesus created all things, but he was the first creature and then became the agent of God to be the source of all creation. Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29 is, we see this firstborn language used again. Romans 
Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's how the objection goes. Can God create another God? No, because God by definition is not a created being. He is eternal. That's one of his characteristics and his attributes. He is eternal. If that is the case then how can you believe that Jesus is God since especially Colossians 1.15 testifies that he is the first of all creation. Therefore, that verse implies that Jesus is not God. See how the argument goes? How do we answer specifically Colossians 1.15 in light of the truth of all of Scripture that does testify that Jesus Christ is divine? Has anybody ever bumped into this verse or has bumped into... Somebody who's brought this verse up as an objection. When you read that verse on the surface level, do you get the impression that Jesus is the first of all creation? If we're honest with ourselves, it kind of sounds like it. But this is where we have to understand our Bibles because oftentimes we can take our own definitions and bring them into the scriptures when we first need to see how the Bible defines terms. And see how the scripture uses words in light of its own text to see what the the author and the Holy Spirit, more importantly, intended in using a specific word such as firstborn. Firstborn has many meanings. One of those meanings of being firstborn is exactly how it sounds. Being first of something in terms of chronology or coming into existence. So the idea of me, I am actually the firstborn of four total. There's Peter, then there's Pauline, then there's Benjamin. I'm the firstborn. I'm the eldest. That's one definition. But then there are other definitions that this word is used for in the scriptures. And one of them is that. The other one is firstborn describing something being superior in rank and position. Again, something being or someone being elevated above all other things in comparison. And the third is to be that firstborn in terms of chron- chronology or one, the, the beginning of, of, a, of a sequence of other things and as well being superior in rank and everything else. Shall we go to some examples? Psalms 89. Psalms 89. Beginning in verse 19 to 21. Those definitions will depend upon the context that that word finds itself in. In Psalms 89, 19 to 21, this psalm, a majority of this psalm, describes God's covenant that he had made with King David. The everlasting relationship and commitment that God has made to David that for the rest of his generations to come, there will be one who will sit on the throne. And just to make sure we understand that, it says here in verse 19, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Now let's get some context on who David is before we go go on in Psalms 89. There's a lot of attention given to David. We even have the details of where he is in terms of his lineup with his siblings. Where does David stand in? in comparison to his siblings in terms of age. He's the youngest. Now let's get the text for that in 1 Samuel 16, 
verse 10. 1 Samuel 16, verse 10. You don't have to jump there. It's going to come up on the screen. But if you want to write these down, I would encourage you highly to do so. 1 Samuel 16, verse 10. Samuel was sent by God to find another king. King Saul, unfortunately, has crossed the line. And God now is looking for a man after his own heart. And when he sends out Samuel the prophet, he tells him to go to Jesse's house. And one of his sons would be crowned and anointed as king. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So out of all the several brothers that came forth, none of them was chosen by God. Samuel's thinking, I know I heard from God. I know that one of your sons is supposed to be king. Are you sure that they're all here? Is that what we see in the next verse? Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Can you think about that? When Samuel first came and asked for all his sons, his father did not see it fit that the youngest should even come. See, even if your father or mother might reject you, God does not. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. David comes. We see that he's anointed by Samuel the prophet. And we have to understand that he's the youngest in light of what we're about to discover. So now you're still in Psalms 89. And we scroll down to verse 26 and verse 27 of that psalm and see how the Bible describes David. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him what? The firstborn. I will make him the firstborn. But we just discovered that he's the youngest of all his siblings. So we know that God is not saying that he's going to be the first of his siblings or the first. No, that's not the context at all. In fact, we have the backup to say that he's the opposite of the firstborn, if anything. So what does God have in mind when he says, I will make him the firstborn? It's in the second part of the verse. The highest of the kings of the earth. That's what he has in mind. That he is going to make a covenant with David. And by making a covenant with David, he is going to lift him up to be supreme, superior, above all other kings on the earth. That's what he means by firstborn. So do you see how a word that can seem to imply to be created first actually means to be of paramount ranking and dignity? So David is an example. Here's another one. Exodus 4.22. Exodus 4.22. Look how the Lord speaks of not David as servant, but Israel as a nation. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. There's a lot of questions with that statement being used for a nation. God, are you saying that out of all the nations you birthed and maybe symbolic or poetic form, Israel was the first nation that you created? That's not true. Israel came way down the line in terms of becoming a nation. Or is he saying that out of all the nations, God has elevated the nation of Israel for the purpose of performing his will on the earth as his representatives, specifically in the Old Covenant? That's exactly what he has in mind. Israel is my firstborn son. Out of all the nations, out of all the people groups, I made a covenant with this people group, and I will use them for many reasons, but for the main sole purpose 
of channeling in the seed of the Messiah that will come and not just redeem Israel, but the whole world. Israel, my firstborn son. Here's another example of seeing how the firstborn in terms of actually being created first and firstborn in relationship to being of greatest rank and greatest of position and superiority actually come together. Ready for this one? Genesis. Genesis 41.51. Please, guys, if you, if you feel like, I know it's Friday night. That's the end of the week of a work week. I'm fully aware that you might be a little bit more tired than usual. If this is going too fast, just let me know. We can go over something. Don't hesitate. This is Bible study. It's not a sermon or anything. Joseph called the name of the firstborn. So Joseph had two sons. And it tells us the order and the names of these sons. The name of the firstborn, what's his name? Manasseh. For he said, God had made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now let's go to the next verse. The name of the second he called, what's the name of the second? Ephraim. For God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What a beautiful definition of a name. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Does anybody know an Ephraim? I don't. If you do, let them know they have a wonderful name, because it is a wonderful name. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful. Okay, let's not get caught up in the definition of the name. Let's look at the fact that Manasseh is referred to as firstborn. He was born first. Ephraim is the second. What firstborn means in this context is exactly how we read it, that he came out of the womb first. He is the eldest brother. But then... You're reading through your Bible, you're going through it chronologically, you're going through it in sequence, and then you come to the book of Jeremiah and your devotion, and then you read something in Jeremiah 31.9 that makes you kind of scratch your head and wonder, wait a minute, I, I remember reading something else in Genesis 41. So we go to Jeremiah 31, and look what the Lord says concerning how he's going to deal with the people of Israel in gathering them in and fulfilling his love for them because he had made a covenant with them. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Oh, what's going on here? And Ephraim is my firstborn. But we just read that Manasseh was the firstborn. And Ephraim is the second. Unless, of course, God is making a statement concerning the tribe of Ephraim that he is esteemed and raised above in comparison to the others. Do we see how firstborn can be used in different terms and different definitions depending upon the context? So what do we make of all of this? What did Paul mean in Colossians 1.15? Did he mean that Jesus was first created and everything came out of him? Or does he mean that Jesus Christ, above every human, above every angel, above every heavenly being, is supreme, is paramount in rank, is of greatest position, power, and fill in the blank of anything that is wonderful. That is what Paul meant when he said that Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is preeminent above all. But then you're reading Colossians, you're saying, okay, I got it. I got it, I got it, it's good. Then you're going through your devotions, and you're reading, reading. You went from Genesis 41, and now you find yourself in Revelation, and then you stumble something in Revelation chapter 3. 
You see something in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 that almost puts you in a stump again in, in verse 14. And what does Revelation 3, 14 say? This is Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, it's red letters. And it says, and to the angel of the church of, in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now we took care of firstborn. And here we are now with another word. Beginning of God's creation. And here comes a Jehovah's Witness to your door to say, he's the first one that God created. He's a creature. He's the agent, yeah, that created all things, but he was first created before he created all things. And they go to Colossians 1.15, you go, sir, in love, go to Psalms 89.27, sir, in love, go to Exodus 4.22, then they go to Revelations 3.14, say, what about this one? Any answers to this verse or any ideas? Yes, Leah. Uh, I don't know if this is relevant to it, at, or, uh, but in, it talks about how in Hebrews 2, he's the author and finisher of our faith. So could it be how he started the faith, the beginning of God's creation, that he, um, not just that, but also Colossians 1.18, how he's the firstborn from the dead as mm -hmm. well. So could it be something like that? You, you're making a right reference to the Colossians again because it's going to come full circle. Oh, this is where sometimes the original language helps. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a Greek scholar or anything like that. But when you look at the original word, because when it comes to these kind of things, sometimes there has to be a battle of the languages. And one of the words uh, concerning beginning, in this context especially, is the word arche. That's how it's pronounced. It, it's spelt almost like arch but it's pronounced almost like RK. And if I butchered the Greek, forgive me. But the definition of the word is more important than anything else. And again, beginning can mean like what we meant with firstborn, defining something that just came into existence first as a series of something. But also it can mean as the source or the origin of something coming about. And the other understanding is of principality, rule, or majesty. It's very similar almost to what we defined as firstborn. And the only difference is, really, with this definition is that it can be the beginning of something coming out of it. Not being the creative thing, but the source of other things. And so we have to, again, look at this and say, what does it mean, then, in, in light of the context? Does it mean to be created first? Does it mean to be the source of all things that are created? Does it mean to be of greatest rule and principality and majesty? And even the words like archbishop, archangel, those words derive from this Greek word from beginning, RK. And I think what we have to do in light of Revelations 3.14 is just zoom out because we have to look at the context and see how the word beginning is used in the rest of the book of Revelation. Do we see the word beginning being used in other ways that would clearly eliminate the possibility that it implies to be created first? Yeah, in the same book. So Revelations 3, and you're at your doorstep, and the Jehovah's Witness is waiting, and you go, hold on. Go to chapter 21. So you go to Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And look how it describes God. And he who was seated on the throne said, so we know that God is speaking. God is speaking loud and clear here. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. The what? The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now nobody would dare touch this scripture and say God is saying that he was a created being by calling himself the beginning. Nobody would dare touch that unless they really want to make a point and, and everything else crumbles in light of that, even the Jehovah's Witness. Nobody would dare to say that the fact that God calls himself the beginning means that he was created at one point because it eliminates the definition of him being God in the first place. What's interesting about Revelations 21.5 is that the fact that he says those marvelous, divine, glorious titles is how we see it in Revelations 22.12, the next chapter. Now, who's saying this? It's not God the Father. It's not the one sitting on the throne. This is Jesus Christ. And he says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. Oh, there it is again. The beginning and the end. Now, you say, and listen, when we go through this, in the New World Translation, they would, you don't show them that. You show them what we just read in Revelation 21. They'll say, that's Jehovah. That's God. Of course, that describes him. You say, hold on, go to the next chapter and see what it says right there about Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, the beginning means that he was created. So you're saying Jehovah's was created? Because it says the same thing, describing himself. Jesus Christ dares to use the very same thing that God on his throne said concerning himself and applies it to himself. Would you be fair and consistent with your logic and bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because he is God. He is Lord of all. He's the beginning, and he's the end. And he's not saying there that he was created. And if anybody's confused, if that's Jesus, just go down to verse 16 of that same chapter, and he says it very clearly. I, Jesus. Right there, I, Jesus. He's the one describing himself, and he gives himself the very same description that God on his throne gave himself. Now, this is where it's going to come full circle. When Jesus said in Revelation 3.14, and we can go back there, when he's speaking to this church, and we've done this when we started together in a teaching series in the book of Revelation. One thing that we learned was Jesus never used random titles, adjectives, words in his introduction to the churches. He never. He never just used random things Instead, he used specific wording and specific attributes and titles for himself that is very much relevant to the audience in which he is addressing, including this one. And so he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And if we know our New Testaments, if we've, if we've scaled through our Bibles enough, we realize that the beginning of God's creation has a ring to it. There's something where I've read that before. There's something about that title. There's something about that phraseology that I've seen somewhere before. And Aaliyah, you brought it up. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. We read verse 15, 16. And let's just read from 16 down to 18. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what we've been arguing. That Paul is not saying that Jesus was created. Paul is saying that he's preeminent. It's right there. But he uses the word, the title, the beginning. He said, what's the relationship? In the very same epistle that Paul wrote this to the Colossians, he makes a request to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 16, that makes us all come together and makes a profound statement in Revelations. And when this letter has been read among you, Colossians, have it also read in the church of who? The Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Do you see what Jesus is doing through his vessel, the Apostle John, in writing that letter in Revelation 3? He's saying, I am the amen, faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And the Laodiceans would have known exactly what was going on. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is pleading, is reintroducing, is stirring the hearts of this lukewarm church to remember what the Apostle Paul had written to them in describing the glory of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus introduces himself like this to the church of Laodicea, it's not foreign. They've been given a letter that has that very same description. And what the Lord is trying to do is bring them back to understanding what they knew about Christ. Do you see how there's a connection there? Do you see how the Lord is using Colossians 1 and reintroducing himself concerning his preeminence to the Laodicean church? We all see that, right? You say, what's the significance? Now we go on a little rabbit trail because it gets very practical here. We could put a pause on the divinity of Christ and let's get really real and raw about our own temperature concerning our understanding and relationship with Christ. What I find amazing about that connection, that he introduces himself as the beginning of God's creation, making connection to the fact that they had received this letter, that glorious letter. What is Colossians all about? Declaring the supremacy and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ in hopes with that power demolishing every false teaching that was creeping into that church you want to know how you really defend and defeat false teaching just preach the glories of Jesus Christ prove how he is above all things that's what Paul was doing in that entire letter and Paul slips it in he says passes on to the Laodiceans he's saying what's the point here's the point they were lukewarm you know what for a long time, the understanding of lukewarmness is kind of made in connection with, let's say a lukewarm church, we say, oh, it's lukewarm because they don't preach the word. Oh, it's lukewarm because they don't have a standard. Oh, it's lukewarm because they don't declare the person of Jesus Christ. Wrong. That's not always the case. That can be a majority of the reason why. When the word is not preached, when Christ is not exalted, people have just come for a social gathering. Sure, that's one reason. But that wasn't the case with the church of Laodicea. They had light. They had revelation. They had the greatest preacher outside of Jesus Christ write to them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet they have still fallen into spiritual stupor and slumber. Which says something to us that should put us on red alert. That you can still have the greatest sermons preached you can still hear the greatest revelations and still be lukewarm. 
Because it's not necessarily about the word that's being preached, whether it's preached faithful or not. Yes, a big reason why the masses are lukewarm is because we've turned this thing into how we, I can get blessed and how I can be. Listen, that's not the case with the Laodiceans. Even when Christ was declared and they had received that revelation, they still fell into this lukewarm phase. Because it's not about the word, whether it's being preached faithfully or not, though it's a part of it, it's about how your heart responds to the truth. So no matter where you find yourself, we can't blame whether the word is being preached faithfully or not all the time. we got to ask yourself, am I responding rightly to the word of God? Because as much as the preacher has a responsibility to preach the message of God faithfully, every person that comes on a weekly basis to hear the word of God has to come with a heart that's ready to be changed by it and ready to receive it. If you want to know how you can ring the alarm, when to do so, when to do so concerning the temperature of your spirituality, it's this. When you're hearing sermons week after week after week and you're only getting duller and duller and duller. When the text is coming forth and the people of God are being fed, yet they are still coming to a place in which they are finding themselves satisfied and not in need of anything. Ring the alarm. Put a finger to the pulse and say, where am I at? You know what this church was really missing? It's what we find later on in that same chapter where Jesus says, I'm outside of the door. I'm knocking. Would you let me in? Because you can have letters written by the apostle Paul written to you and still not have communion with Christ. If you need some biblical evidence to how some people who are sitting under the greatest teachers in the world or even the greatest teachers in the world are lukewarm and indifferent towards God, look to the Laodicean church. They're the Apostle Paul described Jesus Christ in all his glory and majesty, and they were still coming for whatever reason they were going for. That's a sobering reality, is it not? It should sober us. Now let's put it on a positive light. This is how we can get excited. That the same Jesus that the Apostle Paul was writing about to this Colossians church is the same Jesus that was saying, can I fellowship with you? Will you let me in? Because as glorious as I am, the fact that I created the furthest star in the galaxy to the smallest blade of grass, I want to meet with you in your bedroom and talk with you. And I want to let you pour out your heart before me and I want to pour my spirit into your heart. So that church of Laodicea, he comes up, he says, I'm the firstborn, I'm the beginning of God's creation. And that same, same chapter, he says, would you let me in so that we can sup together? I want to commune. Which shows me that even Colossians 1, 15 to 17, is not about defending whether we have the truth so that we can disprove some Jehovah's Witnesses so I can be brought to his feet and worship him and love him. Because as much as he is preeminent, he's my friend. He's the lover of my soul. He's my leader. He's my guidance. He's my comfort. He's my peace. He's my joy. He's my pleasure. And the Laodiceans miss that. They're saying, I have need of nothing. I got everything going for me. He goes, you don't realize you're poor and naked. You're blind. Not because you didn't receive truth, but because the truth came to you and you didn't let it bring it to your knees. You just let it fill your head. So I'm here to reintroduce myself. Not so that you can have some doctrine fit in your mind so that you and I can fellowship. Why don't we do that? comes full circle shall we go to another objection let's turn our bibles to luke 18 18 
This is the one that Barrett brought up. Let's read this together and see what possible objection could come out of this text. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what, what can come out of that? We already said it, but just for the sake of conversation. What argument can be made out of that statement and answer that Jesus Christ makes? Okay, I think it's a little bit more specific than that. That Jesus isn't calling himself good, he's saying. Okay, that's exactly it. So in saying, as a response, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What some would assume is that Jesus Christ elevates the moral perfection of God and at the same time is showing by this response that he is not on the same level of that moral perfection. So by him saying, why do you call me good? He's almost questioning that statement as though it's a false statement. And elevating God while at the same time eliminating the possibility that he is on the same standard of absolute goodness. Now, this is a potential problem if that is the case. But how do we know that this is not what Jesus is saying here? Because you and I have the right to go to the rest of the book of Luke as our context and to prove through different texts that Jesus Christ is in fact perfect and on the same level concerning God's moral perfection. But we don't even have to go to other texts. We can stay right here and realize that that's not what Jesus meant. So let's see how Jesus followed up. The ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now look what he does now. By the way, Jesus is a master evangelist. And when you read Jesus' words, realize that Jesus is not Again, just like Revelation, how he introduced himself to the churches. He's not just using random phraseology. Look how Jesus, and just see what he's trying to do here with this young man. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Well, why is he saying this? Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, we've gone through a series in the Ten Commandments. Which commandments is he focusing on? Commandments of man. Okay, so the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with what? Our relationship and how we relate to God. The latter six deal with what? How as a man I deal with my fellow man. And what Jesus does here is he focuses on the latter six commandments. So let's turn to Exodus 20. And as you turn to Exodus 20... Let's go to the parts where he's describing the commandments dealing from man's heart to another man's heart. Exodus 20, verse 12. And we're going to read this and see if you notice something. So keep in mind what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Now we see what God from Sinai says through Moses. Honor your father and your mother. 
that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice anything? Now compare what Jesus says in Luke 18 to what God says in Exodus 20 and see if you can make the connection. So he um, essentially saying nobody can follow that perfectly except for God because he's so obsessed with doing relating to people on a perfect level. So that, that is the conclusion that Jesus is about to make. You're right. You're on the right track. But before we come to that point, notice what Jesus does. He left out the last commandment. He left out the last commandment when he spoke to the rich young ruler. Go back to Luke 18. Look at verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. That's one. Do not murder. That's two. Do not steal. That's three. Do not bear false witness. That is four. Honor your father and mother. That is five. Now, how many relate to man? And what was the one that he left out? Do not covet. Do not desire the things that are not rightfully yours. Do not have a heart that is not content with what you have and is burned up with a desire to acquire what belongs to someone else. Do you think Jesus left that out just by happenstance? Or did he know something about this rich young ruler's heart concerning him saying that he wants to inherit eternal life? Just to confirm this, look what happens. Verse 21. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Yeah, except the last one. So even if you've kept all those, those first five, look what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. One thing you still lack. Jesus touched right on the nerve of his soul concerning the false idea that he was walking in total obedience to the law. Because he had a love that was greater than his love for God. And it was a love for money. It was a love for possessions. It was a love for materialism. And as we know, you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus will not share you with someone else or something else. And he says, do you want to follow me? Give up everything. How does he respond? But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And he went away sad. Because you can have all the money in the world and still be the saddest person in the world at the same time. And so by eliminating, at least in Matthew's account, Matthew has it in mind by the Holy Spirit to leave that part out so that we would see here that Jesus knows what this man is really dealing with. He has an idol in his heart. And he has this false idea that he's walking in total obedience. And he says, give it up. If you're not really covetous, then give it up. That's the opposite of somebody that's not covetous, that you're willing to give things up instead of always wanting from other people. He couldn't do it. I find something fascinating about Jesus' approach here as well, though. So that's one thing. But you know what Jesus also does not do? He mentions the five, and he indirectly brings in the sixth. What about the first four? He doesn't bring up the first four. 
He could have brought up the first four, but he doesn't bring up the first four. Any reason why? The ones that are relating to relationship with God. Maybe the ones he omitted were the ones that the rich young ruler was not able to keep. Okay. So we only mentioned, so we only mentioned the ones that are, that yet, yeah, I've kept those commandments mm. that, was, that were listed. Okay. Think about the original question. Yes, Nahan. Can't serve two masters. Sure, so there's an idea there that you can't serve what you have in your heart and love God at the same time. That, that's a possibility. Yes, Sandy. Is it the fact that he called him good? He's referring and he's saying, I'm not good, but God is good alone. So kind of assuming there's already this relationship. So there's, there's, we're touching on it here. Every, we're, we're, putting, we're tipping our toes here. Dipping our toes here, yeah. Um, how, can, how can he love... God, if he doesn't love man first, um, there is a scripture somewhere, you know, how can you say you love God when you don't love your brother? Right, in First John where it says, how can you love, how can you hate your brother whom you do see and say that you love your, your God that you can't see? Okay, there's something, it's, it, we're all kind of, we're getting warmer here. You, somebody had their hand up back there. Okay. I think what Jesus is trying to do here, yes, Christina. Okay, so you're right on the fact that I believe that Jesus is making connection with the original question because the question is wrong, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's our whole faith about? You don't do anything. It's grace. It's by faith. It's putting your trust on what Christ did. Now look what the Lord is doing. It's almost as though now he's steering his mind away from the concept of trying to obtain my own righteousness to inherit eternal life. And instead of going to the first four commandments, which he could have done, if righteousness was by the law, which we're going to go through in Galatians, it would have been fitting for Jesus to say, not just sell everything, but love the Lord, you got all the... He doesn't. What does he do instead? What does he do to fill in the gap instead of bringing the first four of the Ten Commandments? Well, let's read here in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Follow me. So almost as though the gap of the first four commandments is replaced by what the true way of salvation is, and it's abandoning everything to pursue and to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Don't look at the law anymore, rich young ruler. This is the means by which you have eternal life. You really want to be saved? Follow me. Does a man say that? Does a creature say that? No, God says that. Jesus Christ is making a statement where he's pointing to himself and calling him to look, not at his own works or the law as a means of salvation, but to look to Christ. Come and follow me. Stop looking to the law in your own efforts. Do we see that? Do we see how Jesus is making something so clear here? So it still maybe doesn't answer the original question though. What did Jesus mean by, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is it possible that Jesus is answering this way? He didn't deny it. He's questioning him. 
Why do you call me good? In other words, he is making him reflect on the statement that he had made to realize what kind of conclusion that he's making. Why do you call me good? Don't you realize that only God is good? So here's the questioners to this statement. This is how their, their, their thoughts are flowing. God alone is good. Jesus is not absolutely good. Therefore, Jesus is not God. That's how the objection comes, right? God alone is good. Jesus is not absolutely good. Therefore, Jesus is not God. But what Jesus is trying to say here is God is absolutely good. Jesus is absolutely good. Therefore, Jesus is God. Why do you call me good? Are, do you realize what you're implying by calling me good? Because only God is good? Do you see how he's making him, he's provoking him to realize the, the depth and the weight of his statement by calling him good teacher? So Jesus is not rejecting that claim. Jesus is causing him to reflect what he actually just said. And then he goes on to do what we just expressed and explained he is not denying his divinity. He's making a connection to his divinity. So the actual logic is this. Again, God is absolutely good. You're right. I'm absolutely good. Therefore, I'm God. Let's go to one last objection for the night. Any questions on that one or is that one clear? Here's one amongst many. And we'll call it a night after this. Nahren brought this up, I think, a couple weeks ago, but it's found in James chapter 1. James said that God can't be tempted. In James 1.13, was Jesus tempted? Therefore, Jesus can't be God. That's the objection in light of James' text. And what's the quick answer to that? It Sure, God doesn't tempt, but look at look at the phrase right before that and see what it says. Before it says that God cannot tempt anybody. Say when he is tempted. But 113, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So again, the objection is God can't be tempted according to this verse. Jesus was tempted. So this plus this equals the fact that Jesus is not God. Yes. Um, I feel like there was an attempt to tempt Jesus, but he wasn't actually tempted. It's almost like Satan tried to tempt Jesus, so it seems like he was tempted, but actually he was never tempted in that way. Okay, well, I think we have to maybe be careful because Jesus was genuinely tempted, or unless he, he can't sympathize with our weaknesses. But I know where you're going with, because James is going to answer what he meant by tempted. Yes, Spirit. I think the quick answer would just be Christ was tempted in his flesh. Right. The hypostatic union, Jesus in his humanity was tempted. But... Though that is a quick answer, I think there's still much more room to make this even weightier and make this more complete. Here's a question. Was God ever tempted? Not in the person of Christ. God, was he ever tempted? Okay, I need three volunteers. Ready? Somebody, Exodus 17, 1 and 2. Exodus 17, 1 and 2. Here's the second person. Numbers 14, 21 and 22. Numbers 14. 21 and 22. And lastly, Psalms 106, 13 and 15. So Exodus 17, 1 and 2, 
Numbers 14, 21 to 22, and lastly, Psalms 106, 13 to 15. Whoever has Exodus 17, let your booming voice come forth. All the, con- all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Who has New King James? What does New King James say? All right. King James? Anybody King James? All right. Our faithful King James Herald. Exodus 17, 2. 1 and 2. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, wherefore do you tempt the Lord? Tempt the Lord. So test, tempt. We're going to re- see why. Numbers 14, 21 and 22. Numbers 14, 21 and 22. Peter? Uh, but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice. Test, tempt, tempted. So here's where we see. We see each one of those instances, Exodus, Numbers, Psalms 106 even, is giving commentary on God throughout the wilderness journey being tempted by his own people. Being tempted by his own people. Being tested by his own people. Now, the Hebrew word is really important because it's so vast. It has many meanings, right? And one of them is to test. One of them is to be put to the proof. One of them is to be tempted, to be proven. And so that's why these various translations use that word interchangeably, test and tempt, because the Hebrew word is vast in its understanding and definition. And so what we see here, though, according to these texts, is that God himself was tempted. God himself was tempted. And what's fascinating is that all those instances speak about God being tempted in the wilderness. Where was Jesus tempted after his baptism? In the wilderness. So what did James mean? That God is not tempted by evil when we just clearly, we know that Jesus was tempted. Now we realize that Jehovah was tempted in the Old Testament. It's not with evil. This is, it might not not necessarily be with evil to this because... His people asking for water, his people asking for things. It's not necessarily an evil act, but just something that shouldn't be done. I think there's something there. And I think the rest of James really answers the question. So you go back to James and see what verse 14 says right after verse 13. And then we realize, ah, surely this is what James had in mind when he meant that God is not tempted by evil. James 1.13, then we go to verse 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person, now look at what he's, look at what form of temptation James has in mind. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Speaking about us as humans, that we have this sin nature and we have this inclination, we have this thing in us that is aroused, that pulls us towards certain things that are sinful. All of us have that. That's wired in within us because of Adam. And that temptation 
as much as we would love to blame the devil for all of it, is really rooted in us. And what Satan wants to do is come and fuel that, bring that up to life, bring that to manifest, and arouse it so that we would fall into that temptation. The root of temptation, ultimately, is in you and me. In this wicked, depraved heart of ours. In the world, the flesh, the devil, we're all at war with all those things. Now, that verse, in connection to verse 13, makes sense now. When it speaks about God not being tempted, it is speaking about his own nature. That there's nothing within God because he's perfectly holy and perfectly pure, that would cause him or arouse him to be interested in anything that is evil and wicked. He is not like you and me. There is nothing in him that he's never experienced sin for him to be wooed or pressured or persuaded by sin, though men have attempted to and have failed miserably. And so what James is saying is, hey, listen, even through your temptations, don't ever look at God and say, God, you're doing this to me. Because God in himself does not know what sin is, and there's nothing in him to want sin, therefore, he doesn't know how to tempt you to sin. That makes sense. So what James has in mind mainly is that within God's nature, there is nothing that would birth, so to speak, the pursuit after sin. Though externally, especially Christ, that temptation has come has come towards him in great intensity. This goes back again to Jesus' sinlessness. There is nothing within him because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit that would be aroused, though there is no even external influence, right? So this is what James has in mind. Have you fallen in love more with Jesus than you did when you walked in? I pray that you have, because that's what the point of this is. Yes, we have proven the divinity of Christ concerning some objections. There are many other objections that have been brought about concerning his divinity. But let's just marinate on the ones that we've just heard. If there is one that personally ministered to my heart, it was the reality of the Colossians, the Laodiceans, that Jesus brought up the revelation of him being the beginning of God's creation. Almost to say, did you forget? Did you forget? Did you forget how awesome and glorious I am? Oh, how we can forget. And how we can become like the Laodiceans where we begin to acquire and fill ourselves with different things. When Christ all the more is burning with brilliance and saying, would you be satisfied in me? Not in some doctrinal way. No, in an experiential way. Compare that. I pray that you would never read Revelation 3 the same way again when you go through your devotions. And whenever you see Revelations 3, that Jesus, that tender Jesus, that Jesus standing there, he's standing there. Notice he wasn't sitting there. Jesus doesn't sit and wait too long. He's standing. And though he is patient, he's long-suffering. You and I can miss out on a lifelong experience of his fellowship because of our own foolishness. He's standing. And when he stands at the door, would you never forget to relate it to that brilliant picture that Paul depicts in Colossians 1, 15 to 18? That same glorious God is the same one that wants to eat with you and me, so to speak. May that humble you when you wake up tomorrow morning, when you wake up next week, to realize that this Jesus wants to hear your voice. This Jesus wants you to worship him. This Jesus wants to have that exchange of love 
If you ever want to be humbled in your prayers, don't just start off by rambling off your requests. Take the time to just realize who you're speaking to. Just take the time to realize who it is that is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God who has all of his attention given over to you in that moment. Realize that, and I can tell you this, you'll tremble with your lips before you make a request. You'll lose your breath when you take the time, however you do it, because God is not concerned about the position of our bodies as much as he is of our hearts. Whether you sit up against your bed, whether you kneel, whether you lay prostrate, just take the time to see him there. I say, this is the one that I'm about to speak to. And I can guarantee you this, this might actually happen where your request won't be requests as much as it will turn into worship. When you realize how awesome and how powerful and how sovereign he really is, those menial things that used to eat us up inside seem to just be blinded by his brilliant glory. And now you have fallen to a place where that hour, that half an hour, that 15 minutes of devotion has been pure, holy worship unto the Son of God. Did you forget? In the beginning of God's creation. Doctrinally, I understand it. No, 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 no. Let's have fellowship. Let's have fellowship. God, help me realize that you're not a subject to be studied. You're a person to be known and experienced. Yes, I have to know the truth. Because if you don't have the truth, you don't have the true Christ. But oh Lord, let my heart come to life. God forbid we become the church of Laodicea. Where we study what Paul said, but we're satisfied in everything else but Christ. Would you join me in saying, Lord, keep me from that. Keep me from that. Keep my heart soft. I don't know about you, but I want to come to the place that no matter what sermon is being preached on Sunday, that my heart would jolt with life just knowing that God is speaking. It can be about Leviticus. Just because he's speaking, my heart comes to life. I want to come to that place every single time. Every single time. Whether the sermon is 15 minutes or 50 minutes, to be able to say, oh Lord, you're speaking. Make this about me meeting with you at the end of this sermon. Make this about me meeting with you at the end of this Bible study. You pray that prayer with genuine sincerity and with hunger every day. I can tell you this. You won't hear even a Bible study about the divinity of Christ and leave with your heart calloused and dull like when you came in. As you're praying, I'm going to read Revelations 3.20 before we worship in song. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Never forget this. That is his number one desire for you and me. This is a hill that we will die on, that from Genesis to Revelation, the throbbing heart of God in light of every command, every verse, everything that God has revealed himself to be is for one purpose, fellowship. Maybe that's hard to believe. So let's just go to the end of the book and see what God himself says. Revelations 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear God's heart in that? 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's heart. At the end of the book, it's been complete. And he says, this is what I've been longing for. My plan of redemption, me sending my son, all of those things was for this end goal to dwell with each other. That's why in verse 6 he says, and he said to me, it is done. It is done. What, have I, what I've intended and planned for from the foundations of the world and even before that was for this very moment, eternal fellowship with my creation. Unadulterated, unhindered, unveiled communion. And I said, Lord, if that's your heart for me, would you make my heart for you that way? If that's what you want for me, if that's what you long for me, if that's why you send your son to shed his own blood for me, can my heart say the same to you? That's what he wants from us. Whenever the worship team is ready, let's do what God intended us to do as a response to how glorious he is. Love him and adore him. Yes, Lord, how we need you. We know what firstborn means now. We know what the beginning of God's creation means. We know what it means that God cannot be tempted. We know what Jesus meant when he said, God alone is good. Why do you call me good? But Lord, with all of that, Help me love you more. Lord, we ask that you would help us believe, not just that you are divine, not that Jesus Christ is truly deity. Yes, help us believe that. That is of absolute necessity. But Lord, help us believe that this Christ wants fellowship with me. That this Jesus, preeminent in all things, wants to drive with me to work tomorrow. And wants me to whisper my needs to him as I lay in bed. and wants me to sing to him as I do dishes. And when I feel like I'm lonely, even as I'm making a meal and I'm not eating it with anyone, that I know that he's with me. That in all my endeavors, I can invite him into it. And that even in some moments, he can make himself so real Lord, we ask, we ask desperately as a church that we would never find you outside of it knocking. Lord, you would find yourself in the midst. And as we walk here every Friday and Sunday, we would sense the nearness of the Son of God. Lord, that no matter who comes behind this pulpit, it would be the words of Christ by the Spirit through the Scriptures being declared. And all our hearts would say, oh, he's speaking to me. Oh, isn't he lovely? 
Lord, we as a church declare that if this is not built on the foundation of intimacy, then we're not building anything. But Lord, we pray that no matter where we are in the faith in terms of how many years we've been saved or how much scripture we know, that we would have this one thing in common. Jesus Christ is everything to me. And I fellowship with him and he fellowships with me. Lord, if anybody in here, oh God, we pray, if anybody in here doesn't know what that means really, Lord, touch, touch our hearts afresh, God, to realize how real you are, God. Please, we, we need you to help us to do this. As much as we need your help to understand the divinity of Jesus Christ. Help us understand the fellowship of that same Christ. Lord, bring us to that place. Bring us to the place where, like that song says, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Oh, Lord, we worship you. And we with you, Lord, say we cannot wait for the day where death is destroyed, where our bodies are glorified, and we will have that communion with you that is so intense and so filled with joy that our bodies in the now would not be able to contain such glory. But Lord, would you give us samples as we meet together? Give us samples, Lord, week after week. Give us samples of what's to come, Lord. Lord, we need these samples, oh God, because this world offers so much. And Lord, if you don't give us what alone can satisfy, our flesh is tricky and deceiving enough to persuade us to go to broken cisterns. Oh God, keep us with your presence. Keep us with your glory. Keep us with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit week after week. Lord, bring us, bring us closer to the veil of eternity. Give us a peek, Lord. Give us a peek. Peel back the curtain and let us get a glimpse of what's to come. Peel back the curtains of our souls that's so cluttered day after day by the things that this world wants to present to us. Oh, Lord, peel back the curtains of our souls and let us get a glimpse of what you are, who you are, what you have to give. Precious Lamb of God, worthy is your name. You're everything to us, Lord, and may it be known in not just Friday or Sunday, but every day, every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.